This is Legacy Bow. Make sure you hit like and subscribe, whatever you're watching on or listening on YouTube, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, Amazon. We're on it all. Hit that like and subscribe button. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight for the Gridiron Battles on Brian King. We've got a special interview here for you tonight. We're joined by MLB relief pitcher, spent six seasons in the show with the Mets, Pirates, the Giants. 1996, he had the third most appearances for relief pitchers uh, in the majors. He's got a career 12 and 7 record, eight saves, 3.65 ERA. So we got reliever Mark Dewey here. Mark, thank you for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Awesome. Let's jump right into it. Go ahead, Brian. So, Mark, it all started for you, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then uh, at nearby Grand Valley State University. Uh, you actually had a nice um, span of time there where you struck out 87 batters in a span of 97.2 innings. Uh, what was it like for you in those early years? And, and who was it that showed you the, the, the basics of pitching? Well, you know, I grew up, like a lot of kids, playing Little League. I was in a very good Little League system. I grew up in Jenison, which is a suburb of Grand Rapids. Um, and I don't know that anybody really worked with me much on pitching through high school. So I was actually a better hitter coming out of high school than pitcher, probably a better base runner than anything. Then once I got out of high school, my the, the year I graduated from high school, I pray, played for a man by the name of John Anderson. It was a Connie Mack league, and uh, he was the coach. And he was the first one that really started working with me on pitching. And he was the second one, my JB baseball coach, Reed Johnson, who had played minor league baseball. He was the second person to actually say, hey, I think you can go somewhere as a pitcher. Like I said, my, my mindset coming out of high school was, no, I'm a hitter. I'm and I pitched because the coach wants me to pitch. But John Anderson, Coach Anderson, would be the uh, the first one to really work with me as far as pitching. So I should mention to our listeners, we're going to be jumping all along the timeline here during this. So <laughs> I'm gonna I want to take you to the, to the mid '90s. Your your time with the, the San Francisco Giants. I almost said New York Giants here. San Francisco Giants. Uh, I looked at that team. I, I saw the roster. You're full of big hitters. We've got Barry Bonds, Matt Williams, Robbie Thompson, Royce Clayton. Uh, the list, go, Glenn Allen Hill, I think, was on that team, too. The list goes yes. on and on. And then we got starting pitchers, Mark Portugal, Terry Mulholland, Mark Leiter, Rob Beck in the in the closer. Like, what do you think went wrong in that, that, that first, you know, 95, 96 in there? Like, on paper, you guys were absolutely stacked. Yeah, see, now you're testing my memory going a long way back. Um, and we didn't really, if I think back about it, even the last, say, month and a half of the season, it wasn't like we said, hey, strong finish here, we can make the postseason. Um, so I don't really know what to pinpoint it on. Like, I know I know that, uh, you know, injuries always play a factor. And some teams, when they have injuries, they can overcome them because maybe a guy comes up from the minor leagues and does something, you know, nobody anticipated. But I do not remember. I can't pinpoint necessarily why it is that we struggled, or at least we didn't really compete to win the NL West. And I assume that in practice, you got you got to go up against you know the guys I just named Bonds, Matt Williams, like sluggers. What what were they like? Like seeing just you know crushing the ball. I mean, I know at that time period they were still only hitting like thirty homers, but you know <laughs> what what was it like to be part of that like hit show? Well, it was, it was fun to watch both in the standpoint of just in batting practice. Usually, as a pitcher back then at least, you were watching as you shagged in the, in the outfield. 
and then also to watch from the standpoint of um, being in the game or being, uh, you know, a teammate and watching them play in the game. Now, the interesting thing is I firmly believe I, so I played with the giants in 1990. Matt Williams was there. Then I came back in 95, 96, Matt Williams was there. Then I firmly believe that if there was not a strike in 1994, Matt Williams breaks Roger Maris's record. He was on pace. And when he got hot in hitting home runs, he was he he would just go off, and I really think if the strike hadn't happened in '94, Matt Williams would have broken Roger Maris's record. Wow. Well, let, let me take you back to 1993. I, it was a really interesting season for the Pirates. Um, they were coming off back to back to back NLC uh, as appearances, uh, but the team suffered heavy losses in free agency. Doug Drabick and Barry Bonds uh, were the biggest. Uh, but you were able to have the best season of your career. So how were you able to to keep positive on a team that was taking a big step back? Well, in part because I had been with the Mets in 92, uh, 91 and 92. So I came to the Pirates in 93. So I wasn't there for the 90, 91, 92 championship seasons, right? right. Another guy that switched teams was Bobby Bonilla, who I played with in New York in 1992. So mm-hmm. for me... And I was still, I think, technically classified a rookie in 1993. I don't think I quite had a big enough big league time to, to not be classified a rookie. I could be wrong on that. But so I came in as a new guy, basically. And so I had an opportunity. You know, I was pitching really well in Buffalo for AAA uh, for the Pirates at the time. And then on July 31st, I got called into the office, told I was going to Pittsburgh. Well, that was the night before the trade deadline that Stan Belinda got traded. And so I was able to come in. And then kind of fill that role as closer for the last couple of months of the season for the Pirates. So for me, coming from the outside, it was just kind of a, a new opportunity. Not so much what the Pirates had been the three years previous. Right, right. Something, uh, you know, Brian and I like to ask when we, when we get Pirate players on, because, you know, we grew up there in, in Pittsburgh, is your thoughts on Jim Leland. Uh, you know, how was he as a manager? And, and what, was his atti- what was his attitude like knowing that ownership wasn't, giving him what he needed anymore well I mean I can't speak necessarily on it I didn't he didn't reflect it in the clubhouse now I think the fact that he left would be a reflection of that but he is a very easy manager to play for I love his intensity intensity in the dugout intensity in the in the clubhouse Um, very straightforward the one thing that the first thing that that shocked me about Jim Leland it never happened to me before so I get called up to Pittsburgh and the first time I'm coming into a game, I come trotting out of the bullpen, right? He goes to the mound, makes the pitching change. It's the middle of the inning. I trot to the bullpen, and he just handed me the ball and turned around and went in the dugout. Didn't say anything. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, did I do something wrong here? Well, Terry Collins was our bullpen coach that year. And I'm like, TC, what's going on? He goes, that's just how he handles it. But I'd never had a manager just give me the ball and turn and walk away without saying a word. But <laughs> Leland was very easy to play for. He, he really didn't show favoritism. So if he had rules, Andy Van Slyke was going to abide by the rules just as much as Mark Dewey. If Jim Leland didn't care about a particular thing, like whether you were out for stretch or not, he didn't care for Andy Van Slyke or Mark Dewey. He was very good about that. And obviously a very good manager in grain strategy and how he handled his team. Right. Well, back in 1996, um, while you remember the San Francisco Giants, uh, you chose to exclude yourself from a team event. Uh, which was held to show solidarity for those fighting the AIDS disease. Um, what was the reasoning behind that move? 
And if you were given the same circumstances, would you make the same decision today? Now, that's that's a question that I will answer as quickly as possible because there's a little backstory that needs to go with it. Okay. Um, so in 1995, so they, they began an event while I was away. Remember, I came up with the Giants in the minor leagues, was in the big leagues in 90. I went away from 91 through 94, and I came back in 95. And the event was called Until There's a Cure Day. And a teammate of mine through the whole minor league system, a friend of mine, Rod Beck, and his wife, Stacy, were very instrumental in that. So in 1995, somebody from the public relations department for the Giants comes to me and says, will you read a list of names of people who died for AIDS? It's part of the pregame ceremony, and a few of us did it. Dusty did it. I did it. I think Royce Clayton did it. Rod did it. About five of us, maybe. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I did. And, and I did so because I wanted to show compassion for people that had AIDS. And in that event and on that day, my desire to show compassion for people with AIDS didn't change, but the event was promoting things like safe sex. Well, I'm a Christian, so safe sex is a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So in 95, I said, well, if I'm back next year, in 1996, I can't participate in this event. It wasn't a big deal for me. I just said, you know, I, I can't do this because I'm compromising. So the next year, I got asked again, and I just said, no, thank you. Um, and then it turned into a big deal because some enough people were kind of watching um, because it's not like they announced each player individually when they went out in the pregame ceremony. You just all went out in mass. But some reporters were watching and afterwards asked me about it. When I expressed why I didn't participate, um, it kind of became a big deal for a little while. So let me build off of that a little bit. Christian athletes we see are just they're chastised by the media today. We've seen it over and over again. Uh, most recently, Tim Tebow, of course. Um, you were an athlete who stood up for your faith. Uh, that, that, that's amazing, awesome. You know, you'll, you'll be rewarded later on for that, of course. Um, but what, what's it going to take for Christian athletes to be respected and backed by the organizations and leagues? Because I know the media is never going to do it, but uh, what will it take for, for the organizations and leagues? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, you have a Tampa Bay hat on. And at least the public statements made by the Rays last year after their five pitchers did not participate were supportive of them. I think, I think there's a lot of support um, within the clubhouse, even for guys that say, you know, hey, I think you ought to participate in this. I think within the clubhouse, guys understand that. I think the bigger issue is the media. And I think in a large, a large degree, Major League Baseball as an entity, my big thing is, is that a Christian cannot support what God condemns, and, and he's got to not support that. You know, he doesn't have to walk around with a picket sign, but he can't, he can't encourage something that God condemns. And he's got to do that whether the organization is going to back him or not. And I know that's hard. I know it might mean you get, you know, you lose a job or you, you get slammed in the media or whatever. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have to, you have to stand for what Christ stands for speak in love and our definition of love is not a biblical love it's don't ever do or say anything that might offend anybody which of course is a, a manifest impossibility so i'm more concerned about the christian athletes doing what they should do out of love for christ and love for others and letting the chips fall where they may now i would like to see teams come in and say listen we're not going to force our guys to participate in these things and if they choose not to we're going to back them like the Rays did from what I, all I read last year. So that's what I would like to see. But the first thing I want to see is Christians who are actually going to stand boldly and, you know, suffer whatever consequences come their way.
Now, Mark, during your, during your career in the National League, um, there was no shortage of great hitters. I mean, you have Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla and Ron Stamberg and, and Andre Dawson. Uh, who was it that stood out to you as the most challenging uh, hitters that you had to face? I guess I'll answer that in a twofold way. The two people that I could seem to never get out was one, a Hall of Famer, Barry Larkin, and then secondly, a very good player, but I couldn't get him out when he was very good, and I couldn't get him out at the end of his career when he was hitting a buck 90. That was Howard Johnson. So as far as me and my difficulty, those would be the top two. As far as the, the as it regards, I was a hard, I was a hard sink, sinker ball pitcher. So I pounded right-handers inside without a care in the world. You know, I couldn't make a mistake. I couldn't leave it over the plate. But but there were two people that when I was going to pound them inside with my sinker, I thought, you better get it in there. And that was Gary Sheffield and Moise Salou. Those two people, there, there was a there was a different way of thinking when I pitched against those two people, then it would be any other right-handers, no matter how good they were. Now, guys like Bonds and Gwynn and those kind of guys, I didn't face as often because being a relief pitcher and them being left-handed, you know, but I did face guys like Sandberg and Piazza and Carlos and Mondesi and Bichette and Burks and Galarraga, you know, those right, Biggio, Bagwell, Bell, those were the guys, especially in the National League West that we saw a lot. Those were the guys essentially I was getting paid to get out. I'm going to take you back to 93 one more time here. Um, so I, I look at the end of the 92 season for the Pittsburgh Pirates. They assumed that Tim Wakefield was going to take over as the ace for Drebeck. That was kind of what we were all told there in that area. And I, I don't want to say like the, maybe the pressure got to him or whatever that year. This man went on to have an amazing career, 20 plus years. I mean, fantastic. The knuckleball is it's hit or miss whether or not it's going to do what it's supposed to do. But, uh, you know, we, we also talked to Jeff Ballard a little bit about, about uh, Wakefield that, that season. Did, did you interact with him at all? Did, did you feel like maybe pressures were getting to him? And, and was the maybe the issue just his knuckleball just wasn't working that season? Because, I mean, right after that, he goes to Boston and he's phenomenal for the next 15 years. Yeah, again, I have to get the chronology of this right. I remember sitting at Three River Stadium in 1992 in the dugout when Wakefield was on the mound and thinking, how does anybody ever hit that pitch? <laughs> and I believe by the time, because again, the, the, the Pirates claimed me off of waivers from the Mets. So I wasn't in spring training with the Pirates. So I came to the Pirates in mid-June, spent six weeks in Buffalo, and then came up. Now, Wakefield, I think, was still in double-A at that time. And then he came up either after the expanded rosters or somewhere in that area. And then in 94, that's when we were both together through spring training and all that. And, you know, a knuckleball is hit or miss. And one of the things that I think probably happened to him back then that didn't happen to him when he was in Boston, especially after he gave up that, that big home run, is I think there was some doubt, right? And anytime a pitcher has doubt, you're going to have problems. I think it's probably amplified if you're a knuckleball pitcher because you have to trust, trust that pitch explicitly. So my guess is there was some doubt. There was some, okay, last year, and now I'm referring to 92, I was lights out. And a lot was expected of me. And do I really, can I give, can I deliver, no pun intended there, can I deliver on what's expected of me? And I think he probably did get a little bit of pressure and have a little bit of doubt but boy, he did bounce back after that. He he did a just a phenomenal job in Boston. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
So, Mark, you've, you've done some coaching over the years, uh, Brevard County, Manatees, Washington Wild Things, Emory and, Hen and Henry uh, College. Uh, what was the transition like going from a, a player to a, to a teacher? And, and besides a strong arm, what attribute would you say is most important in a pitcher? Whew. Well, first, I'll, I'll answer the first part of that question. So I first got into coaching. I helped out at Emory and Henry College, which is a, it used to be a Division three school. It's now a Division two school back after I was done playing. And then I okay. got my first coaching job with the Mets in 2000 okay. as a pitching coach. So that was my first transition Then I coached in indie ball. And then I coached for a, an extended period of time with the Brewers as a pitching coach, assistant pitching coordinator and pitching coordinator. And I, I think I think one of the things that I saw is that and this is where I would encourage even say minor league or even big league players. If you go in the offseason and try to teach somebody, whether it's a clinic, whether it's lessons, whatever it is, it really helps you because you realize I've got to be able to articulate what's in my mind in a way that this guy can understand it. And so I think that's a very valuable thing as a player. As a coach, what you're saying is, okay, maybe this came easy for me and it doesn't come easy for this guy. Or maybe this was my strength and it's not his. Or maybe this was my weakness and it's his strength. You've got to figure out how to take, to figure out, first of all, what this particular pitcher, you know, if you have 12 or 13 pitchers, you have 12 or 13 different guys. Yeah, they may fit into buckets, but 12 or 13 different guys. So what does this guy need? And a lot of times, the number one thing, going kind of back to the Wakefield uh, question, and again, I can't guarantee my answer was correct, but a lot of times the number one thing a pitcher needs is confidence. He's just not confident in his stuff and his ability to get guys out. Now, I used to have a saying with my pitchers, get after it, get better, or get a job. And my whole point was, you, your stuff is what it is right now. You're trying, to, you're trying to make it better, but get after it. Attack the hitters. And either you're capable of getting them out or you're not. If you're not capable get, of getting them out, then get better. And if you're unwilling or unable to get better, then go get a job somewhere else because pitching is not your job. Now, arm strength is a, is a terminology that really is never solidly defined. What does a pitcher need more as much as that or more than that? I would say the ability to move well through the center of gravity or through the core. So they have to have both stability and mobility in the center of the body. Because the center of the body, from my perspective, is kind of like starting the engine because it really all starts from the center and then goes down to the ground and then comes back up. It's like starting the engine and then it's like the transmission. And so if I lack stability, it's like having a transmission that, that, um, that doesn't kick in. If I'm lacking uh, mobility, then it's like a transition that, that can be stuck. I didn't explain that very well, but so the, the, the core is where it all starts. And then that energy goes into the ground. And then it's going to come out of the ground through the foot as a right-handed pitcher, through your right foot in particular, your right leg, and, and ultimately comes out at the arm. If the core is not strong, and if the core cannot move well, mobility, and if you can't control the core well, you're going to have all sorts of issues, whether it's injury issues, whether it's a lack of velocity or stuff issues. So for me, the core is the most important thing. So before I give you the last question for tonight, uh, let, let me uh, let me dive a little bit deeper into what you just said there. So let, let's take the confidence issue. And I don't even know if you'll be able to answer this question, but it is something I'm, I'm interested in knowing. So a guy like uh, Steve Blass, Rick Ankeel, um, and we saw it in some fielding players like Chuck Knobloch and Mackie Sasser, it, 
it has to be something more than confidence with, with those guys. Uh, you know, they just they they couldn't get the ball to the plate anymore. Mackey couldn't not double pump on his throw to to, to second, and, and Knobloch had the error problems. So, it, it, any idea what, what something like that cause, causes something like that? Well, people typically cause call that the yips. There are others that work with the mental side of the game that don't like that terminology. But, and, and I played with Mackie Sasser. Of course, Steve was in the broadcast booth in Pittsburgh. I didn't right. play with him. He's older than me, but I, I've been around him. And then I was actually, I actually watched, I was in AAA when Rick and Keel had, had, had the issues in the postseason. It was the next year or two years later. And it was, it was the saddest thing I've ever witnessed in my life. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And that's a whole different category. And I've, I've worked with some guys as a coach that had that same issue. And it isn't so much confidence as it is that in your head right now, your, your head is getting in the way of your body. So your brain is not allowing your body to function freely. And so now, instead of having confidence and then, if you will, letting it rip, whether that's Mackie throwing it back to the pitcher or Rick Ann Keel or whatever the case may be, Every movement now is kind of micro-analyzed in your brain. And so your body just won't function as it should. And there are very few people that can overcome that. I actually, a guy that, that I had uh, as a coach, Phil Bickford, he had that serious, he could throw me, he, we played catch a lot. He could throw a ball 320 feet and hit me in the chest. But at 60 feet, I'm chasing balls to the, to the fence behind me. And I just kept playing catch with him. And when he threw one behind me or whatever, I just turned around and picked up and threw it back like nothing had happened. And I really was concerned. Phil's a great guy. But I was concerned, is he ever going to be able to overcome this? Well, he has. He's been in the big leagues with both the Brewers and the Dodgers. But he is a success story that, as it regards, quote, unquote, the yips, there aren't a lot of them. Yeah, John Lester never got overthrown at the, the first base either. So it keeps happening. But uh, so we'll get you out of here this night. Um, Tell us about your podcast, Bullpen with Mark Dewey, and where people can find it. Yes, so the podcast is in the Bullpen with Mark Dewey. It is on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. So if you get the Fight, Laugh, Feast app, you can get it easily there. It's also on Apple and other places. And it's a weekly podcast. It drops every Monday at noon Eastern. And it is looking at baseball. And I try to cover everything from little leagues to the major leagues. But, of course, most people's interest is in what they can see in the major leagues. And I try to look at baseball uh, as a fan. But as a fan and a former player and a former coach and look at it from a biblical perspective. So, you know, there are plenty of non-Christians that listen to my podcast, but it is definitely coming from a biblical Christ is King worldview and looking at the game from that perspective. And I saw you had uh, Dusty Baker on. You have some other players as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, I've had about Dusty was the first guest I had. I've had about maybe 15 different interviews. Um, so I had Dusty on. I had Clint Hurdle, so two of my former managers, uh, Ned nice. Coletti, who was an assistant GM with the Giants when I was a player. Then I've had other players. Uh, a good friend of mine is David Nilsson, former big leaguer. He coaches the Australian team. He'll be the, the manager of the team in the World Baseball Classic. So it's it's kind of run the gamut on, on the different guys I've had on. And if you like David Nilsson, check out his episode in our archives, everybody. <laughs> Came on our show for a Brewers debate. So... But, uh, yeah, we want to thank Mark Dewey. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. I'll remind everybody, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button. Thank you for watching. We'll see you all next time.